We live in a world that is upside down. All around us, evil is pronounced as good. Good is condemned as evil. Truth has no meaning. Oppression exists and not in all the places that we're told that it does. And this is the world that every year we come and we come into the Christmas season and sometimes we act as if that's not the world we live in. We just flip this switch. Oh, it's the Christmas season. We have lights, we have gifts, we have family, we have joy, and that is all true. But it's almost as if we as Christians close our eyes to the world as we celebrate. Because this is a time that's difficult for many people, is it not? I mean, maybe for you, maybe you are fighting depression in a way you've never fought before because of what goes on around us. Because when we look at the world, it seems like there is no hope. Maybe you're in a position where you're, you just found out, as Miriam has found out recently, of this diagnosis of a, of a deadly cancer and a treatment that is, that is very hard on her body. What kind of Christmas is that? Maybe we have the focus on children so much, and it's glorious to have so many children. If you were with us five years ago, four and a half, five years ago, we were praying for children. And I think God has answered that prayer. But what if you can't have children? What if you've lost a child? What if your grief has never ended over that? Maybe you're here and you're celebrating the first Christmas after a loss of a loved one. And you just aren't sure about joy right now. See, that's the world we live in, is it not? And yet Jesus came. And it is good news. And for us to celebrate Christmas according to the scriptures, to celebrate Christmas in a way that that doesn't negate the world that we live in, but lifts our eyes above the world we live in to the hope that we have in Christ, that, when we talk about the reason for the season, that is it. I mean, sure, it's not to be caught up in all the glitz and glamour and Christmas and spending money and all of that. That's not the reason for the season. But the reason for the season doesn't just turn off this broken world around us. We're living in that world, and we're called to celebrate. And you know what? In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the world was also broken. And this is what Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 8 and leading into chapter 9. He's talking about God's people, and he's speaking for God, telling his people... Listen, if you're going to go this direction and trust your own wisdom and call upon uh, spiritists and necromancers and all of that, what does Isaiah say? To the testimony. That's what he says. As for me and my family, to the testimony. Me and my children are signs to the faithfulness and glory of the Lord. And he said, but if you decide to walk that way, and it's the world we're living in, right? Turning to all forms of truth that are not biblical, turning God's ideals upside down, making our whole world seem like it's upside down. Well, the coming of Jesus turns everything right side up, even though we don't see it yet. And Isaiah says that. Isaiah says at the end of chapter 8, he says these words, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak 
contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. He's speaking in the physical sense of them being taken into captivity. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's the judgment of God, isn't it? And we are under the judgment of God as a world today. We see this. Paul tells us in Romans that we are, we are under the judgment of God when these things happen. Not He doesn't judge because they are happening. It is the judgment of God upon us in what we live on. And yet we have seen the light. The light is Jesus. And that's the promise even in Isaiah. The setup in Isaiah 8 is the world is full of darkness. All of God's people are walking in darkness because they're rebelling against God. And the world today is rebelling against God and walking in darkness because they're under the curse of God. But listen to the promise that begins verse 9. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Now that is a prophecy, both of the deliverance of the southern kingdom, of being taken into captivity, but it's also of Jesus. How do we know that? Because Matthew chapter 4 tells us that, remember? It's when Matthew tells us that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes to this region, and this ver these verses are quoted as the beginning of the ministry in which this light shining on the people will happen. So we are a people who know the reason of the sea for the season is in Isaiah's time, it was crazy and turned upside down. And God promised the light in the darkness. And Jesus comes as that light in the darkness. But it's also in the time of Jesus' birth. I mean, just think about what was going on in the time of Jesus' birth. Just think about when the promise comes in Luke chapter 1. When the promises start to be um, revealed in Luke chapter 1, we are shown that the first thing that Luke decides to tell us in chapter 1 is John the Baptist and his birth being foretold. Remember that? And, and, and what happens when that, hap when that prophecy is given? Zacharias says, well, how can this be? I'm an old guy. And yet Gabriel says this, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which were fulfilled in this time. You see, there was doubt even there. And then Mary is told that she will have a child. And what does she say? How can this be? There's doubt there. And the angel of the Lord now sees the heart of Mary and says, what, fear not, because God is going to do this thing. The whole world was just going on as if nothing was supposed to happen, even though God had promised the Messiah would come. And in the fullness of time, he sent his son. And so even at the beginning where there's doubt, there's doubt in Zacharias, there's, there's doubt in, in Mary. And, and as we begin to look at Luke chapter 2, which we just heard read by our children, we have life going on as usual. Life going on in a country where there is a ruler that is evil. Life going on. 
Because we, as we heard our children, Caesar Augustus, who, who is, a, who is a, who, a wicked emperor, but he's the one who calls for the census and so, that, so that he can take stock of, of where all the people are in his kingdom. And yet, as he calls for that, what is being done? It's prophecy being fulfilled. We have the shepherds in the field, and what are they doing? They're just doing their job. They're working at night the bad shift, the shepherds are the ones that, they're just not respected in that world. They're the lowest of the low. They're out there, their testimony couldn't be used in a court of law because that, these are the people who are not trusted in the world and yet they're the ones that the angel of the Lord appears to. They're just going about their business in a wicked world. We have King Herod after Jesus' birth. You remember, he's a wicked ruler. And he finds out from the wise men who come to him seeking the, this babe in a, the, the, that has been prophesied, and it's after his birth, and Herod says, what, the king of the Jews? Because that's who, that's who they're seeking. And so he decides he's going to kill all of the male children under two years old in Bethlehem, every single one. Now that's pretty evil. That's an evil that we haven't experienced in our world yet, or have we? as we kill millions of babies every year. Life keeps on going, and yet God is always working. Because what happens to Herod? Well, Jesus is spared because God intervenes, and the parents take him out, out away from there. And then after Herod dies, note that, Herod dies. He, he's talked about as being a god, so is Caesar Augustus, but they die. Why? Because God's the sovereign king. Jesus being born in a manger is the king. And so life goes on, but God is always working, carrying out his plans. And we know this. We know that he is always working. So even there, prophecy is being fulfilled as they go to Egypt, and then they return, and guess what happens after Herod? Another wicked ruler takes his place, Archelaus. So things keep going as they're going in a sinful world, and God continues to work. So we, in this life, where we look around and see a world that continues on from bad to worse and evil to evil, we are the ones who know God is working. And how has he worked the greatest? His son, born in a manger. Turn to Luke chapter 2. You see, we are the people that live in this world... And the world can overcome us if we don't keep our sights set in the right place. Because though the world seems upside down, Jesus has come to turn it right side up. And he's accomplishing that every single day as he brings people to himself. Well, in Luke chapter 2, you have the longest narrative of what's going on, on around Christ's birth. And we know that we have Caesar Augustus in verse 1. He designated that all the world should be registered. And that brought Joseph, verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So this, even as Caesar Augustus works through Quirinius and this, this census, we are seeing scripture fulfilled. Turn, keep your finger in Luke and turn to Micah chapter 5. <clears throat> Micah chapter 5. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. 
Look at verse 2. Before this, to set our context so we understand what's going on, the Lord promises that there will be an exile for the sin of the people, but there will be a redemption from that. There will be a deliverance. There will be a rescue from exile. He's promising this also after saying that the temple will be destroyed, but it will be rebuilt. You'll be sent into exile, but you will be delivered. All that's going on in chapter four, and this is the promises of God. And then he gives this prophecy that will, that will speak to their deliverance, but it also speaks to the broader deliverance of what? Being delivered from the captivity of sin. So all of these deliverance passages in the Old Testament all give their nod to, some very clearly, some not as clearly, that there will be one, the Messiah, the suffering servant, who will come and deliver his people from their sin, the exile that they have from God because of their sin. And in verse 2 of Micah chapter 5, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, another name for, for, um, for Bethlehem, it means fruitful, Bethlehem means house of bread, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, or for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time, and she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh, his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now, I want to read that whole section because sometimes we only read verse 2, but it, this, this messianic figure is also described to us as one who would shepherd his sheep and bring peace. This is exactly what is promised in Luke chapter 2. So even as the world is working toward evil, God is working toward his desired ends. And we celebrate Christmas in this time in, as those people who have hope for the future because of God honoring the promises that he did on this first Christmas when Jesus was born. Back in Luke chapter 2. So they came to be registered, verse 5, with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So they go in, according to the government's commands, to pick up. You think you might be a little bit mad at the government when you're about to give birth and they say, oh, you've got to make an 80 mile, mile journey and you have to go to a different town. And then when they get there, there's all kinds of debate on what the end is, but here's what I think happens. They come back to his hometown. They have family there. They have family there that they would stay with and they probably now have their own guest room. That's what the end, the word for end means in the only other place it's used in the New Testament. And there was not room to give birth, so they went to the first floor, which is where the animals were often housed in the first floor of living dwelling. And that's where there was, of any place that they lived and dwelled, and that's where the baby was actually born. And they placed them in a feeding trough. So we're at the lowliest place anybody could think of. 
This is also turning worlds upside down, isn't it? Think of what the Jews are expecting when the Messiah, when the Messiah comes. A powerful reigning king to come in and deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. That's even what, what Zacharias' prayer starts out with, is physical deliverance to li- deliver from their physical uh, oppressors even before he moves on to the promise in his Benedictus prayer to the promise of Christ. So it's, they're expecting one thing, but this turns their world upside down, doesn't isn't it? Because now we have the Messiah, the one promised in Old Testament scriptures, coming and being born in the lowliest possible way. As if nobody even knew what was going on. Well, 16 minutes and 39 seconds later, we're to our text. And here's the reason. I don't want us to come to this text and just think happy, happy, joy, joy, and go away. And then the first thing that hits us is like a freight train... The world, family struggles, sorrow, news bulletins, webcasts, reading of news online, and all of a sudden you're back in the world and you think, well, that was happy back there because we talked about all this joyous thing of the proclamations of angels. But if you're not connecting that to the world that you live in, then Christ is not the reason for the season. We live in a lost and uh, delinquent world And God has said, I am coming to redeem my people. And Jesus says, all that the Father has given me, I'll lose a couple. It's not what he says, is it? I will lose none. We, you here this morning, if you're professing faith in Christ, are in that security so you can look out at the world and lift your eyes above it because of this story. So this isn't just for December 24th. This is for January 18th and March 13th and September 11th and everything, every date that you can think of. This story is for us on those days because it's good news of great joy. So look at your text. I'm not going to read the whole thing again because we've already read it. But in verses 8 through 14, we are shown two proclamations concerning the birth of Christ Two proclamations between verses 8 and 14 concerning Christ. The first proclamation is a Savior is born. And this proclamation we see in the text has recipients, proclaimer, and a proclamation. Look at verse 8 for the recipients. And in that same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So I've already introduced to you these shepherds. Lowly ones, not respected. Their testimony would not be allowed in the court of law, and yet they were the eyewitnesses to this pronouncement. Isn't that an amazing thing? Because God doesn't do things like the world does. God does things according to his plan and his character, and nothing the world is doing can thwart him. So the the shepherds, they're just doing their job. Just think of the shepherds when you're going to work every day. You're just doing your job. And yet God is at work all around you because the Christ child came according to the scriptures. Now that's the beginning of the whole gospel story, isn't it? That he comes, but he lives and he dies. He lives a perfect life and he dies and he's raised again and he's seated at the right hand of the Father because he's currently ruling and reigning through his church. And so all, all of that is what we're reminded of even when he appears to the shepherds because every day we go to our jobs. We tend to our households. We do the mundane things of life. And yet God is glorified in those. 
This is the message of Christmas as well. We don't forget about the shepherds and who they were and what their status was. This is how God chose to reveal this pronouncement. But not only the recipients, there's a proclaimer of this first message in verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Now, let's not miss this. The glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, the radiance of his perfection in his presence. Now, this is the angel of the Lord speaking. Angels of the Lord often come directly from the throne of God, though, don't they? Think of what Gabriel said. This is where I am, and I, this is where I came from, and I show up to you with a message from the Lord of glory, and you ask me, why? I'm an old man. I can't have children. When we see God working, this is not our response, is it? Our response is, is what the shepherds, they were filled with fear. Now, they were filled with fear because of the glory, because when the glory of the Lord shines, and in relation to us as human beings, that we have one thing to do, don't we? Fall. Fall on our knees, fall on our faces. That's what we would do. We speak so flippantly sometimes about our relationship with Jesus, and yet even in his announcement, angels show up to announce this, and the glory of the Lord surrounds the announcement. Think of how the glory of the Lord constantly surrounds Jesus through his life. Think of how the glory of the Lord surrounds you and I, because he resides in us. His spirit is with us, in us. We are the temple. We're heading to the age where the church is coming and God resides in our midst and we worship him face to face without having to fear because there will be no more sin. So the glory of God is surrounding all of this. And the shepherds, the first thing they do is they are filled with fear. And this is normal in the scriptures, isn't it? Angels are not little fat round things sitting on clouds are they? Angels are mighty beings that battle in the spiritual world. Angels, when you see them, are going to knock you back because you are going to see the, the, their greatness and their grandeur. And here they're seen not only in their greatness and their grandeur, but with the glory of the Lord surrounding them. And the shepherds did what any humble person does is fear the Lord. There's a recipient and there's a proclaimer, and there's a proclamation. The proclamation has a command, a reason, and a sign. Let's look at this proclamation. First, the command in verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not. Now, that's a normal first couple of words from an angel, isn't it, when they appear in Scripture? Because when an angel comes, guess what men do? They fear. When an angel has a message, what does the angel say? Fear not. Well, what would, you, what would you be saying to them? I'm not here to kill you. I'm not here to exercise judgment against you. So the fear not is just like, oh, get up and quit. It's not just get up and quit trembling. It is, you do not need to fear. I have a message from Yahweh for you. You do not need to fear because I am not showing up to exercise his judgment. I am not going to use my stature and my power to kill you. So the fear not is not slight either, is it? Now, when we think of that, isn't that the way that we go into the world? Remember, we're, we're celebrating Christmas, the birth of the Christ child, and we're trying to tie it to our world. We walk into our world saying what? Fear not. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. 
So we're walking in the world. We're not walking into it stupidly, but we are not fearing the world. We don't cower at the world. We stand up for the name of Christ because God is working in the midst of this upside down, crazy, evil drenched world. And he's working to redeem a people for himself. And once that people is gathered and redeemed to himself, what's he going to do? He is going to, Jesus is going to come again and without sin and without suffering will reside forever with him. So when we walk into this world, just like Rome was defeated, just like Herod was defeated, just like all the Caesars were defeated, just like the United States of America and our empire will be defeated if the Lord returns, all of that stuff, is, everything is defeated. Why? Because he is the king of kings and lord of lords, born in a manger. He is the one who rules with the authority of God the Father because all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him, born in a manger. So we marvel at the way God did it and we fall down on our faces in humility because it's the glory of the Lord that is being presented to us. So the command is fear not. But also there's a reason. There's a reason not to fear here. For behold, I come to kill you. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, we have spent enough time in Isaiah for our hearts to swell with that phrase, right? The Messiah is not coming just to redeem the Jews. The Messiah is coming to redeem people from all people, tribes, tongues, and nations. That's been the intent of God from the very beginning. So this good news is not just for the Jews. Here comes this baby born into that tradition. But this is for everyone. And this proclamation is for everyone. And the proclamation comes to the shepherds who are in the field. For not, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, good tidings, good news of great joy. So this news is, when we think about the good news, what's the first thing, what's the one word that comes to our mind when we think about good news? The gospel. That's what it means, right? The gospel is good news. The gospel is Jesus Christ. So the angels are not just saying, hey, what I'm about to tell you is good news. Your, your, your 401k didn't crash yesterday. What I'm about to tell you is good news. You're, it's not that kind of good news. I bring you Jesus, the, good, the best news. The best news that I could possibly bring to you is what I'm bringing. I bring you good news of great joy for everyone. And then he describes that good news in two forms. He is saved, that your Savior is born, and he is Christ the Lord. Look at verse 11. For, so I bring you good news of great joy for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now just... We've already seen that the city of David puts us in line with all those prophecies where the king would come who would eternally sit on the throne of David. We have seen so many prophecies that come after the kingdom is completely sent into 
um, captivity where the prophecies are still going to be that there will be one who will sit eternally on David's throne. And that one will rule and reign according to the justice and the power of Yahweh. So this is being fulfilled, and it's being fulfilled, as we've already seen, just one of those passages, and we'll see another one in a moment, from Micah chapter 5. But look what he promises, a Savior, the Messiah, everything that we've learned about the Messianic coming in the middle of Isaiah over the last several months, we can put that in here, a Savior, the Messiah, or no, a Savior, one who comes to redeem the people, let me back up. Christ is the Messiah. I'm saying this wrong. Just erase that. You have an erase button? You have like rewind for like what? 22 seconds and erase that? Just do that right now. Press the button, erase it. So my confusion is gone. Good. And those of you who are listening, do the same thing. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, the one who will deliver from sin. This is the name of Jesus, the Savior, the one who will deliver his people from, God's people from their sin. So we have this reason for the good news. This one comes as one who will deliver, not just from captivity in physical realm, but from captivity to the spiritual realm of sin. He comes to do that kind of work, which is also just turned everything upside down. How is a baby in a manger going to do that? Well, if we know the Old Testament, we already know that answer, don't we? Who is Christ, the Messiah, the Messianic figure promised in the Old Testament. And just take those Isaiah sermons from the last couple of months and fill that in. I'm not going to take the time to do that right now. But he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the promised Messiah. And everything we learned about the promised Messiah is what? He's coming to do what? Save these people. He comes to die a substitutionary death, Isaiah 53. He is crushed by the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was God's plan from the beginning to accomplish in his, in his son, to send his son incarnate, God incarnate, as the Messiah to deliver his people from their sin. Savior, Christ, but also the Lord. This is Yahweh. This is God incarnate that comes. Now, just, just stopping right here. If this, why is this good news? Because you and I are sinners. You, you and I, before we come to Christ, are under the judgment of God. It's not future judgment. It will be full judgment in the future, but we are under the judgment of God, says John chapter 3. If we have rejected the light, then we are under the judgment of God. But Jesus comes as the light of the world and he comes to give light into the darkness so that those who turn to him, repent of their sin and trust in him, put their faith and trust in him, then those are the ones who have their sin redeemed and he becomes their savior according to the promises of the Messiah because he is God. There is no one else who could ever die on a cross that would have the forgiveness of sin with that capability to forgive sin, is there? You can't die for me. I can't die for you. I mean, we can, but we're still sinners without Christ. So this is one who comes according to the plan of God to live and to die so that you and I would have life when we place our faith and trust in him because he is Yahweh. He is Lord. And he is Lord whether you receive him or not. Because you're either going to stand on judgment day and he stands in your place because he has died for you. He is 
tasted death for you, the wrath of God has been placed on him for you, or you are going to stand and be judged by him because you've refused him. This is the question of Christmas, is it not? We can celebrate the birth of the Savior, but if the birth of the Savior is going to lead to your destruction, then today is the day to, to turn away from your sin, is it not? What better time than when we celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we celebrate the, the birth of the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. What a better time to say, this is the day that I turn from my sin and I turn to Christ because I am a sinner and I cannot stand before God on Judgment Day without the work of Christ. This is the message of Christmas as well. Celebrate, we can talk to people and have them celebrate all they want, but they're celebrating their destruction if they don't turn to him in faith. Amen? So that's you today if you're here. Let me be clear. If you are here today and you have not turned from your sin, repented of your sin, walked the other direction and run into Christ with the confession on your lips that he is Lord and that you have placed your faith and trust in him, that is what it takes for you to celebrate today as one who has eternity squared away according to the plan of God. Amen. So today is the day you turn. Today is the day of your salvation. What a joyful day. It's been joyful already, amen? To come on these days are joyful. They, 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 they tend to be those days where our body seems more unified and more present and our children are present. All of that is nothing if the angels throw a party because you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ today before you go home. Opening presents tomorrow will be a different thing for you. So do it today. Your Savior is born. He is Christ the Lord. But there's also a sign promised. <laughs> Isn't that great? We, we are born doubters, aren't we? Yeah. I, I mean, we, we, have no, we don't have to teach people not to doubt. Or to doubt. We don't have to teach people to doubt. We have to teach people not to doubt. Doubting just comes by nature for us. We think so much of our own thoughts. Something else can't be, oh, that just can't be true. Oh, I'm an old man. How can that be true? And remember, Elizabeth and Zechariah are supposed to remind us of Abraham and Sarah, who went through the same thing. Sarah, what she do? She's, she's listening around the tent post, and what happens when she hears that she's going to have a child? <laughs> she laughs. Why did you laugh, Sarah? Oh, I didn't laugh. laugh. Oh, but you did is what the scriptures say. We're, we're born those doubters. And yet the truth of the word of God is what overcomes doubt. Amen? We can look at the world and we can say, God is not near us. Is he near us as believers? Absolutely he is. Has his light shone in darkness? That's what we're talking about right in Luke chapter 2. Does his light continue to shine in darkness? I don't know. How are you living? Because we are lights of the world, right? Because Christ dwells in us. We're not to put our lights under a bushel or under a basket. We are lights to the world. We go into the world with this message. And so here is even evidence. And we could go into a whole series of sermons about the evidence for the birth and the life and the death and resurrection of Christ. But this is given for the sake of the shepherds. Look back at your text. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This ties right back to verse 7, which ties back to the sovereignty of God to make that happen by using wicked rulers to call for a census. 
so that the king of kings would be in the proper place according to the scriptures and the baby would be found in the way the scriptures promise. He's wrapped in clothes. He's lying in a manger. We see that in both in verse 11. So there's the sign in verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. I think I said just verse 11. I mean verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. But we're not done because there's a second proclamation, isn't there? The first proclamation is a Savior is born. The second proclamation is glory to God. The glory of the Lord shone around the angel when he proclaimed, and now the message is glory be to God. Look at verse 13 as we see the proclaimers. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, so now we don't have one angel, we have a multitude. You can't count them. They're filling the sky. If they were afraid before, what do you think's happening now? You you talk about ratcheting up a little bit. Now there are many angels and they're praising God all together. I've used this illustration before, probably as I preached this text before. But there are some times in your life where you get a little taste of what this must be like. I remember many years ago I was on a football field that was actually a baseball field when we stood there in Candlestick Park. And we were there with the Navy band to play the the, uh, America the Beautiful. Huey Lewis in the News, very famous at the time, sang an a cappella version of uh, the Star Spangled Banner, but we were there to play America the Beautiful. And when they played, when they sang, and then we played, the, the amount of a full stadium all screaming together, it made my chest rattle. I, I mean, it was almost fearful to, to feel the power of all those people in one enclosed place all screaming Maybe you've been in a, in a church before with a powerful organ with all the stops, full stops, and they play, and your chest shakes, and it almost makes you fearful. This is a multitude of that happening. This is a message that I would imagine, this is not said in the scripture, but I can imagine it being heard everywhere, whether it was understood or not, just the earth rumbling because of the power of this, because this is the most important announcement ever made. This is what's before us. So the proclaimers come with the proclamation, and it is twofold. Glory to God, peace to his people. Look at verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. Now that that is the angels giving glory to God who is in the highest place, who is the highest being, and is also, they're saying, the highest amount of glory we can give. And that is our response as well, is it not? Glory to God. That that proclamation overwhelms the world in ways that nothing else can. Evil advances, another Supreme Court decision, another ruler elected, another another amount of... of, um, a bad news that comes through the press, another death in our family, another set of unmet expectations, another round of sorrow, all of those things, the believer says, glory to God, because I am not in charge of this. God is. And if I'm experiencing it, I'm experiencing it in a way that draws me closer to him, and I know that I'm not walking through it alone, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
The Lord is always with us and always near. So whatever we're walking through, we can say glory to God. And I don't mean that we're dismissing what we're walking through. We still have to walk through it. We still have to endure sorrow. We still have to endure death. Because there was a, but because there is a baby born in a manger that we're reading about in Luke 2, we can go through all of that and say glory to God in the highest. Because he is Lord he is my savior. He has come to deliver me from sin. He has come to, to, to make me his people, to make me his child. And Jesus has come and we learn in Hebrews, we learned this very well, that Jesus came to identify with these people, right? He came to identify with them in chapter two so that, so that those who are identified with them, that he overcomes death. So the death no, no longer controls us, but God has overcome death in Christ. He has overcome sin for his people. And Christ came to identify with us so that when he died on the cross, he fully dies in our place. And if that is the case, then what can the world throw at us? Will it make us sad? Yes, it makes us sad. But we are the people who can be sad with joy. Did you know that? We can be sorrowful while we're still filled with joy. We can cry tears while we're still joyful that God is in control of that. When we lose a loved one, we, we're designed, we're wired to have fellowship and to love each other. And if we lose a loved one, something in our life is ripped away and our life is not the same. And yet we can rejoice. Glory to God. He's up to something bigger than I'm experiencing now. So this message, glory to God in the highest, is the message off of our lips. It's what a lost and dying world sees that will be drawn to the next part of the message. Look back at your text. And on earth, peace. The ESV says, among those with whom he is pleased. I think the best translation of this, and on earth, peace upon whom his favor rests. Upon whom his favor rests. I'm not saying that's the best translation because I like it better. I think it's the best translation of the original language upon whom his favor rests. This goes out to everyone. We've already learned it's good news for all people, right? That's what we learned earlier in this text. Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. Well, all the different people groups who are going to receive this news, the one upon whom his favor rests, this is the sovereign hand of God in our salvation as well as the sovereign hand of God in every other aspect of our life. And this is why we preach this message. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is Jesus Christ come to the face of the earth, fully God, fully man, to identify with his people, die for their sins, suffering the wrath of God and dying in their place so that all who believe in him will have eternal life. That's the message that's on our lips. That's why it's good news. Who will receive it? Those upon whom his favor rests. Now, how is that good news to us? Because it's not our job to convince people. It's our job to tell them this good news. It's our job to be the people who live as if God's glory is the highest goal of our life. And that's what it has to be, amen? This is what I tell younger people all the time. Listen, Here's the way the Bible says to make decisions, but the overarching factor in making your decisions is are you doing it for the glory of God or are you doing it for your own glory? Because if you're doing it for the glory of God and he changes your path, you say, glory to God. 
Hallelujah, he changed my path. I didn't want that decision. I wanted God's glory. If God's glory is found down this path, that's where I go. And if you can live like that, you will make a lot less foolish decisions. How do we do that? Glory to God in the highest in all circumstances because Jesus comes to redeem a people for himself. He reveals himself fully and finally in this word. He tells us everything we need to know about us and about him and what it takes to please him. And it all begins in the life of the Messiah, the incarnate God-man, in Luke, what we hear in Luke chapter 2, that he comes as a baby born in a manger carrying out fulfillment of all those Old Testament scripture passages. So, what's the reason for the season? Glory to God, because he sent his son to die for his people. And we live that way every day, knowing that we're walking into the pit, knowing that we're walking into chaos, a world turned upside down. And every time we preach the gospel, we are part of God turning things right side up. Because that's what he's doing. He, he, he's taking what seems to be upside down and he's making it right. He's making all things new. Redemption by redemption by redemption by redemption. And there will be a day he will come again and all things will be restored. So we are the people that have hope to walk through a chaotic world because there was a babe born in the manger. I read an article several years ago entitled... Um, why we need Herod in our nativity sets. Why we need Herod in our nativity sets. And it was such a wonderful little article. It's just a short article, the first article in a, in a magazine from a seminary. And I recall that article reminding me, and this is the point, why do we need Herod in our nativity sense? He's, he's not saying get a statue of Herod and put him there. He's saying remember that we live in the same kind of the world that Jesus did when he was born, that Joseph and Mary did when he was born. Herod is carrying on all the same things that evil men have always done, and evil men are still carrying them on today, and yet God is working to accomplish his purpose, and nothing can thwart him. That's what he's meaning by the point of his article. It was an encouragement that we can lament the world while we praise Jesus and make him the true reason for the season, not just today on December 24th, but every day because he came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. So we are the people who with our lips testify to that glory and with our lives seek that glory that God would be glorified in and through us. That is the reason for the season. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the message of hope. For we truly live in a world that at our highest levels has forsaken you. We live in a world that we have been complicit in that happening as your children. We live in a world that um, babies in the womb that you have created are regularly slaughtered. We are making our own, as, as, as a nation and as a world, our own offerings to Molech. And yet you are always working in the midst of such craziness. So we, Lord, repent of our, of our laziness with the good news of Jesus we ask you, Lord, to strengthen us. Strengthen us as we walk through this world, as we're challenged in ways that we would rather not be challenged with sickness and death and dying and depression. But help us to lift our eyes above that, to say glory to God in the highest because of Jesus and his glory.
Help us to be the ones who live according to this good news, preach this good news, and wait expectantly on Jesus to return in power and glory to consummate his kingdom forevermore and for us to be a part of it and rest from our sin. So we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.